You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. listeners, welcome to Dr. Ann's Relationship Radio here on America's Web Radio. The lovely thing I want you to know about this radio station is that each and every host is here to help you. We provide interesting and diverse information about so many topics that I think that if you listen to 24 hours a day to America's Web Radio, you'd end up with a Ph.D. in just about everything. At least that's my experience. And that's how I like to think about the services this radio station provides. And I came to the privilege of hosting my radio program, Dr. Ann's Relationship Radio, due to a man who was willing to take a chance on me, even though I was completely green in the area of broadcasting. Mr. David Moxley gave me a chance. He said, okay, let's try you out and see what happens. Well, dread seeped through me like fog creeps over the Golden Gate Bridge. But he was so supportive and seemed to have faith that he selected someone to host a radio program who would come through for him and for the radio station. And David had faith in the unknown and gave something new a try. Thank you, David. Thinking about David's faith in the unknown gives me pause for thought when I prepare for each program. I feel so grateful that David gave me and my guests the opportunity to provide all of our listeners with information that might not have ever been heard before. David put his faith in an unknown into action. He put me on the air. He gave something new a chance, and he did it blindly because he really didn't know me. And the program, thank heaven, is a huge success. And thank you, listeners, and thank you, David. And many of us who do the same thing that David did, we do it for various reasons. We put our faith in the unknown. That doesn't always mean that it works out well. Many of us put our faith in alcohol thinking that it will help us get over a problem or change our mood. And it does help change our mood momentarily, but it doesn't help solve problems. Often, relying on alcohol leads to addiction. And other things we put our faith in, we put our faith in our parents. And sometimes our parents aren't so healthy. And we're taught that we're bad kids. And we grow up just thinking we're bad adults. And... Sometimes we put our faith in untrustworthy spouses who disrespect us. And I could go on and on about how many of us put our faith in substances or people, and we're disappointed, and we suffer as a result. Today's guest is what I call a miracle. He moved his faith from the unhealthy to the healthy by trying something new. And Mr. Apperson started drinking when he was 11 years old. I'm going to repeat that. He started drinking when he was 11 years old. 
And by the way, I have many patients who started drinking or using around that time, and I can usually guess the reason kids turn to substance abuse. Most of the time, family of origin issues cause kids to want to numb out. We'll let our guest tell us his reason. At age 19, Don started going to a well-known 12-step program. And boy, that's hard for 19-year-olds. We can actually mention, we can't mention the name of the program that he went to because our guest does not represent it, but I bet you all can guess. And listeners, do you have any idea how difficult it is for teens and young adults to go to a recovery program? My patients tell me that it's a huge challenge because they can't party like everyone else they know. They often feel that they never qualify to hang out with the cool kids who party because they're in recovery, and it's a great loss for them. And after a short time in the 12-step program, our guest relapsed, and he returned to drinking. From age 19 to age 41, our guest was on the addiction roller coaster of relapse, sobriety, relapse, sobriety. He became homeless in Oakland, California. At age 41, Don shows sobriety, and since June 16th, 2000, he has been working a program of recovery and has devoted most of his time to helping others to recover from alcoholism. Listeners, it is my honor to introduce to you Don Apperson. Don, welcome to Dr. Ann's Relationship Radio. Thank you, Dr. Ann. It's a pleasure to be here. I appreciate the invite. Thank you. I'm so glad to have you, and please call me Ann. And please share with our listeners what it was that started you drinking at age 11. I think we're all curious. When I was 10 years old, my mother remarried, and we moved to a new neighborhood. I think it was probably within the first week. I lived by a very large grammar school where all the kids hung out, and I met my best friend, and the day I met him, his name was Richie. He was drinking a mason jar of ancient age alcohol. He offered me some, and I wanted to be cool, and so I drank it. I didn't like it, but to my memory, I drank every chance I had after that, and it was something that worked for me. I didn't have problems at home. I didn't really like myself, and when I drank, uh, the magic happened. Yeah, and that's the illusion it gives us. And it also really negatively impacts brain development in kids. And when things are so bad that we turn to drinking uh, at age 11 because it's fun and it tastes good and we think it's cool, we're really hurting our brain development. I'm curious, Don, what happened between ages 11 and 19 when you started a 12-step program? Well, I was one of those people who kind of got addicted to the alcohol pretty quickly. I got kicked out of some high schools because of my drinking. got kicked out of my house at about 16 because of my drinking. I I was homeless because I didn't want to go live with my dad. I'd rather be out in the streets partying with my friends. Uh, when I was 19, my mom had gotten me into seeing some psychiatrists, 
and that was when they introduced me to the 12-step programs. I didn't like it, so I didn't go there at all. <laughs> Nowadays, we have uh, 12-step programs for young people. I don't know if when you started they had that. Did they? If they did, I wasn't aware of it. Okay, because the 12-step programs for young people, at least where I am in Northern California, can just rock because they do really fun stuff that does not involve drinking or using. I'm curious, what caused you to relapse at age 19? Well, one, because I didn't follow any directions when I was kind of forced into sobriety. Um, I continued to relapse until I was 28 because I wasn't willing to change my behaviors. And and your peer group, I bet, mirrored back to you that your behaviors were right on, correct? Oh, yeah. Well, (laughs) the more I drank, the more often my peer group changed. You know, it started out on weekends, and then when I started drinking every day, when I was about 19 or 20, I started going to bars. I'm from Northern California, too, and I used to go to local bars in uh, the afternoon, stay until really late at night. My sister was putting me up, so I'd go to her house and cause havoc, and she loved me, so she put up with me, and uh, it was just this vicious cycle that continually got worse because... You know, as the party favors of the day came around, I indulged in pretty much all of them. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, we talk about people loving us when they take us in, but really I honestly look at it as enabling the addiction. And I don't know what would have happened to you, and uh, there's no judgment on this, but people who get kicked out, of their abodes, but that they have no creature comforts. The hope is that they hit a bottom and go into sobriety again. I don't know if that works. I, my sense is from my patients that it really does. So in some ways we might benefit from changing our definition of what looks loving and kind. Once I agree. Gets front door. You agree? I uh, guess. Yeah. Exactly. My, my mother... Actually, my family were all involved some way with the law, and back when I grew up, they had a thing called tough love. Mm-hmm. And my mother didn't put up with any of, that, any of my stuff. My sister did it for a little while, but eventually she took the hard line the same as my mother. Um, my family was not much of an enabler after the age of 20. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's really good. But I want to go back for a second, Don. What? Outside of um, hooking up with a guy who you thought was cool and who introduced you to alcohol, were, were there any deep wounds ahead of that that caused you to want to numb out? You know, before I ever had a sip of alcohol, I felt odd person out. Mm-hmm. Even though if you looked at, my, looked at me socially, it didn't look that way. I always felt like I didn't belong. I... Also had some anger issues. I I felt like I never got the book of life. And talking to other people that have the same problems as me, that seems to be a common theme. So, alcohol 
alcohol tends to work, you know, for one out of ten people. Instead of it poisoning me, it kind of lifted me up, and I don't know, I call it distilled spirits because I was lacking in other kinds of spirits, and they worked for a while, and then they, you know, like magic, they turned and turned on me and almost killed me. Yeah, yeah, uh, it's my premise that underneath every addict is some kind of deep wound and not feeling as good as other people or, or um, valued as a person. And, of course, as a teen or a child, we can't think that deeply. It seems to be at the crux of the matter of many folks who are addicted to substances. And I agree. Reality. Yeah. I agree. So tell us about your life immediately after you returned to drinking as a 19-year-old. And I got pretty wild. Heartbreak, so. Okay. Yeah. We're coming up on a hard break, so start, and then we'll have to pick up. Okay. I started visiting local bars in Oakland, California. I started doing a lot of cocaine, um, kind of like a vagabond. I just kind of hung out. I worked in restaurants because that was a great place to keep partying. Um, okay, John, I'm going to have to break us, so we're going to hang out and come back with cocaine, alcohol, and local bars. Listeners, okay. we will be right back with Mr. Don Apperson, today's honored guest. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key and the trained staff at EHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is Daryl Pullis inviting you to listen to America's Homegrown Veggie Show right here every Saturday morning at 10 Eastern Time. Great guests, great tips, and valuable information about growing your own vegetables, fruits, and herbs. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome 
Welcome back, listeners, to Dr. Ann's Relationship Radio here on AmericasWebRadio.com. We are so pleased this morning to be talking to Don Apperson about recovery and addiction. And as we were talking before the break, Don was telling us about what his life was like after he returned drinking after a brief period of sobriety. So, Don, we left off with alcohol, cocaine, and would you pick up from there? Sure. So in 1985, I was working in a restaurant, and my back went out. I ended up having a couple of back surgeries, and about that same time, the crack epidemic started, and I got involved with that crack cocaine also, as well as with pain pills. Um, So I was very self-focused, poor me. I... um, I got pretty low, and in 1988, I attempted sobriety again. This time, I got a sponsor, and I went to meetings. I didn't work work the program, the steps of the program that much, but I got I got a job, uh, best job I'd ever had, working uh, at a software store in the financial district in San Francisco. And what happened, Anne, was that. I started believing the lie that happiness comes from things. I started believing that if I got a new car and I had a nice job and I had a nice girlfriend, that would be, make me happy. And when it didn't, it made me think that recovery didn't work. So I had my um, 30th birthday sober, but long, not long after that, I went back out. And I want to just uh, say that you're not alone in that. The material things are love, self-love, when we buy them for ourselves, when other people give them to us, when we give them to others. And actually, if we ever think back of when we got a new car, like what you were mentioning, how long does that happiness really, really last? We take it not for long. granted very No, we take it for granted very quickly. And it's not how... But we could define a meaningful type of love. So I'm glad you brought that up. And so the girlfriend went, the car went, you went, right? <laughs> yeah. And so I guess you used to, go ahead. So I had my thirtieth birthday and all my friends came around and it was great and I was sober and then I found out I had to have a couple more surgeries and my friend Richie died of cirrhosis of the liver at 32. My sponsor died of pancreatic cancer. And back then I had a strong belief that when things happened outside of me, they were personal to me. And so if my world was so, quote, unquote, falling apart, I fell back into the victim mentality. I went out to have a drink, and uh, for seven years I went to hell. Well, of course, because we just don't want one drink. We really want the whole bar. Exactly. Yeah, and so that sounds like just an emotional disaster. Also, it could have been a lesson like, wow, look what happens around me when people continue to use. But often we don't translate the messages in our life that way. It's the support to recovery. It's more translated like, oh, I really need to numb this out. Well, I went, go ahead. 
Well, go ahead, because I was going to ask you another question. Yeah, go ahead. I'm, I'm ready. Okay. So, um, you used cocaine and you used opioids? Um, yes. I used everything. Your I had a large supply of opioids because of I had two more surgeries in the 90s. And, I, you know, I, was, I, had, I still have chronic pain. And so that was, you know, that was my ticket. You know, I could just kind of live my life as a victim and poor me and uh, what was the use. And I just really started getting heavily into the drugs. And in 1993, I became homeless. Um, I had a car for about a year and a half inwards. And then I used to hang out on East 14th Street in Oakland. And then one day my brakes needed fixing, and I was so busy doing what I was doing that they eventually went out, and I called it, I was driving through the jungle, and then I ended up in the jungle for six years, just kind of on the streets. My girlfriend was a prostitute, and uh, between her, what she did, and me trying to do a little drug dealing, we stayed in the motels, or on BART, or in, in the street, or what we called in the cut, someplace, you know, in the bushes, or something like that. And that just went on over and over and over. I started getting arrested, um, mostly for paraphernalia or um, under the influence. I never got a felony. Not sure how that happened. But everything just kind of started going downhill. And the scary part of it was that I easily adapted as I continued my downward fall. Yes. And I, I think that many people's uh, bottom, as we call it, is into, uh, down the basement is yours, but you seem to have hit the basement. And I also want to make a comment about these opioids, because I have a book out on it. They are the hardest thing to get over, and did you struggle with that? Well, I've withdrawn off opiates quite a few times. Um, yeah, it's tough. It's tough. Um, I think it's, it's tough, tough because it's, tough. it's hell. I think it's hard because the mind, my mind, lied to me. You know, it's really hard, but it can really it only really takes five days. It just seems to. I remember thinking about my life like an upside down pyramid. You know, I was I was down at this point, and there was this vastness that I had to do to get back. And so I kept putting it off and putting it off and putting it off. But when I finally made the decision and I got the help, um, it probably took me a year to um, to really be okay after that. Yeah, I I yeah, I deal with a lot of opioid addicts, and it's very painful. And one of the things that keeps them using is the fear of withdrawal, and that is yeah. a huge fear. So we, in your 20s, so you partied, and then you got some recovery, and then you lost a lot of folks in your 30s, and then you were homeless, and I just want to make a comment about this homelessness because it's in the news headlines today more and more, and they're pitching tents on our city streets, and years ago, I interacted with homeless people in shelters and at People's Park in Berkeley, California, and I even met the self-appointed pastor for the homeless in Berkeley. He was also homeless and used to hang out on Telegraph Avenue helping homeless people in the area. And he even held Sunday services in People's Park. 
And it occurred to me at that time when I was doing that work that there's a distinct culture that comes with being homelessness, and I'm wondering if you would describe what comes from being homeless. I'm wondering if you would describe that for us. Okay, well, I can only describe my homeless culture, which was yeah. a lot different. It's a lot different than that. It, okay. It's a drug-based culture where you're not, you're just living day to day. You know, sometimes you're up six, seven days in a row, and you kind of land where you land. I never really thought of myself as homeless. You know, I thought of myself as just doing the next thing I needed to do to get my next high. And most of the times I ended up in the local motels, um, I never pitched a tent or tried to make a home out of something outside. I just always kept it moving. You know, I'd start on, on First Avenue on East 14th and work my way out to uh, Mission. That's what East 14th turned into back then. And then start working my way back down towards First Avenue. You know, it'd probably be about a year circle, a cycle of going, just, you keep moving 10 blocks up, 10 blocks up, so you can get away from whatever drama you've caused, you know, in your recent past. So, um, you know, I remember being devastated when AC Transit stopped running all night because then I couldn't get on the bus and go to sleep. Oh, my gosh, and it sounds exhausting. Very much so, very much so. When I got sober, I weighed 133 pounds, and I weigh about 200 pounds now. Wow, because I just cannot imagine what it's like to be running from one thing to another to another just to avoid consequences. There is no rest. There's no let's hang out and watch TV for a while. Is that correct? Yeah, time moves very quickly. Seven years went by in what I would have assumed was like two years. Wow. I think for all of us who know not much about the homeless population, and I'm not currently updated on it, it gives us a, a pause for some empathy that there's really something going on underneath it, and I think you know I work in an emergency department here at a very large HMO, and we have homeless come in all the time with a lot of issues that I wish we could help them solve. Anyway, we're coming up in a, in a minute um, to a hard break, but I just want to start this question and put it in our listeners' minds before we return from the break. At age 41, Don, you decided to return to a life of sobriety. And I'm wondering if you would start answering about this question. What prompted your decision? I got arrested again on June 15th in 2000. And I was kept in two different jails for a period of about 67 days, and I actually was able to regain my thinking and so I began the process of moving into, going to a treatment center, moving into a secondary living environment, and working the program, um, the 12-step programs, doing the, doing the program as it is written in, uh, working the spiritual programs of the, of the programs that I was in. Okay. So we're going to have to take a break now, and listeners, we will be right back with Mr. Don Apperson. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? 
We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. My name is Kyle Hayes, a motorsports student at Alfred State College. Every year, Alfred State students compete in the Great Race, which is a cross-country time endurance rally for vintage vehicles. As you can imagine, it's pretty costly. I'm asking for your help. Your donation can make it possible for these students to live their passion and promote the vintage automobile industry. Please visit our site at give.alfredstate.edu and search Great Race to learn more and help us reach our goal. Thank you. Get your pen and paper ready. If there's a move in your near future, I'm here to tell you that the folks I used and now recommend is around town movers. Timothy and the guys recently moved me and I am and was totally satisfied with a sometimes not so fun experience moving. Call Timothy at 770-378-4708 and make it a good move and a good experience. Around town movers for that local or cross-country move. Timothy, around town movers, in my opinion, are the best. That's around town movers. Call them. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back, listeners, to Dr. Ann's Relationship Radio. We are here with Don Appleton talking about addiction and recovery, and we left off before the commercial break uh, about what prompted Mr. Appleton to get back into a life of sobriety, and he had answered, he got arrested again. And so I guess we could surmise that we have different bottoms for everybody that turns us into wanting recovery. Would you agree with that, Don? Yes. I, I had been arrested, I can't even tell you how many times, and every time I would get out of jail, I'm going to date myself, I would uh, go to the corner liquor store and, and get a bottle, and then I would uh, get my pager and uh, make a phone call to go get in trouble again. And um, I just wanted to say that because this time, I was just tired. Um, the police had pulled me over and asked my ID. I knew I had some warrants for failure to appear in court. And they gave me my ID back and told me to take off. So I went walking up the street, and, you know, I could have run, but I knew what was going to happen. And a few seconds later, I heard the sirens, and they turned back around and asked me why I hadn't run because my name had finally popped up on their warrant screen, and I told them I was just tired. And um, so it was still, even though I was arrested, it was still a conscious decision to give up. Yeah, and you had a consequence. And for those of us who think, as we talked about a little while ago, 
that we're being helpful, kind, and loving to those around us who need a place to stay who are addicted to a substance. We are not really doing them any favors. You got tired out on the street, and it turned you around. It's, it's interesting. That sister that used to put me up in my 20s, I was very angry at her in my 30s because she kept telling me that I needed to get arrested, put, be put in jail, go in a program, get my head straight, and she ended up being right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, a lot of the parents I work with, um, that is their most feared event for their young adults or their teenager that they get arrested, and I say to them, that's the best thing that could happen, because then if you don't hire an attorney, they have to deal with it. Anyway, would you describe for our listeners some of the challenges that people face when he or she decides to put down the bottle or the substances? I can tell you what my challenges were. My challenge, my first challenge that I can remember now is that the first thing that rebounds when I stopped drinking and drugging was my ego. I thought that I was better very quickly. And thank you very much. Now what I need more than anything in the world is to get a job, get a girlfriend, get a car, and get back out there in the world. And what I didn't realize was that I hadn't been living in the world, in the real world for a long time. My entire defense against stopping was that the outside world was responsible for every problem I had. I judged everything. And because of my fear and of the unknown of recovery, that judgment continued on probably for the first three to four years of my recovery because I kept trying to do it my way. And a broken brain can't fix a broken brain. That's true. <laughs> that is so true. We do. We, there's a little saying, and I probably am not going to quote it correctly, but if you hang around in your own head, you're in a bad neighborhood. That's right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I wonder if you would tell us about 12-step recovery programs. And your well, as far as, as far as I know, last time I checked, there were about 216 of them. Wow. They're all based on what the spiritual principles. Um, I think for me, for the longest time, I got caught up on that word spiritual. I misinterpreted what it meant, what, what my opinion of what it meant in the books that I was reading. I, I thought that meant I had to go back to Catholicism or some kind of a God thing. And I was so anti-God uh, that probably kept me out there for an extra 20 years. <laughs> but when I finally, I'm sorry, but when I finally got into, when I finally got into um, the program and I started going to meetings where they discussed the spiritual principles and I was, I learned that what they meant by a spiritual uh, awakening or a spiritual experience, it, it meant change. Um, Marianne Williamson says a miracle is a change in perception. And that's exactly what's happened to me. What I had to learn was, what I had to learn was, I was so addicted to instant gratification, I had absolutely no concept 
of something happening over a period of time. And so I kept judging everything based on how I felt and on my emotions. And my feelings and emotions at that time were kind of liars because they were all based on getting me loaded. So as I kept working what I call the circle of solution, and I'll explain what that means uh, when I talk about this, the steps, um, my life started to change. And, um, you know, at first I thought I, would try, I was trying to work and explain God, but finally came down to this. You know, my self-will is fear, and God's will to me is reality and love. And that's pretty simple, and it works for me. That's pretty amazing, and I could go on. We could have a whole separate conversation about that. Uh, I want to ask you, because we're going to come back to that, um, I understand that the community of self-help groups provide a guide for turning your life around. And I think the guide is called the 12 Steps. For our listeners, would you explain what the 12 Steps are? It's a set of spiritual principles that will allow you, allow me to continuously stay sober and at the same time begin to live a life of peace. It's, it's interesting because in a lot of the programs, it's not like it was in the old days where you would go and all they would do was give you these principles. There's now there's a lot of a lot more socializing and things like that, and and people don't everybody doesn't feel the need to do the work as it uh, is set down, and so we get some places where people think that um, well I don't know if I want to get into that. Um, there's a solution, and I believe that there are a thousand ways to come to terms with, uh, with that solution, but there's really one avenue on how to do it. I don't know if that makes sense. You know, right. it, it's in print. You work it this way, and we'll all get a solution. It may not be the same solution, but it will be based on the same principles. But a lot of people either aren't taught or choose not to work those that circle of principles, and I think they unfortunately miss the gift. I couldn't agree with you more because in my experience with my patients, a lot of people go, oh, yeah, I go to the 12-step program. But they don't work the steps and because they don't want to. And from my humble perspective, what the steps do is they provide a path out of the depths and darkness of where many of us are out, a path out, a path to freedom, a path to a better life. And it's not necessarily viewed that way by many. It's viewed as, oh, it's work, and I don't want to do it. But if we don't change how, if we don't change our path on how we live our life, and we're addicts, we'll go right back. It's sort of like a, a suction cup that sucks us back if we are not continually working on staying on a different path that is healthy and helpful for us. I think I can give a, a short a short definition on on the on the twelve principles or the twelve steps that might be helpful. 
to some people. Yeah. Um, for me, the first step is about understanding that, yes, I am powerless over alcohol or whatever my choice of drug is or person or whatever it is, but that once I have gotten sober, I realized or I was taught that I'm also powerless over people, places, and things, and basically the only thing I have any powerful power over is my actions and my own attitudes. And in the, in the second step, it's about a willingness. It's, and what am I willing to do? I'm, I have to be willing to do the third step. And the third step was very difficult for me for a while because it had the word God in it. But what it means to me now, the third step, you make a decision, and what is the decision I'm making? I'm making a decision to work the next steps of recovery. In the fourth step, which everybody gets all kind of spooky about, um, what I'm learning is I, I can't change unless I know what's wrong with me. And um, there's a couple of guys that I listen to named Joe and Charlie, and I like the way they put it. Instead of me figuring out my character defects, they tell me that I'm a selfish, self-centered, self-seeking, frightened, dishonest, and inconsiderate person. That's my character defects. The fifth step is where my sponsor looks at what I wrote about myself and then tells me what, I, what really is going on with me because I can't see it with any clarity. And then I think the most important steps are the next two steps, the sixth and the seventh steps, which I think are woefully um, underworked. Um, that was my biggest problem. I didn't understand that. I thought all I had to do was pray really hard to have my defects removed, and that um, worked. What I learned was what I had to start doing was I needed to stop doing the things that I was doing, all those selfish things, and I needed to start doing the opposite of those things. But the crucial point there is that it was spiritual progress, not spiritual perfection, because whenever I used to react, what I would do is I would do whatever mistake it was, and then I would spend a lot of time beating myself up about it. Oh, I can't believe I did that, going into that self-pity and that victim mode. And what I had to start learning was, when I react, what I need to start doing in the seventh step is learn how to choose to act. And the way that works is that if I do, that if I'm speeding at 75 miles an hour and I want to do better, and the next time I'm only going 74 miles an hour, well, it may not be a big step forward, but it's a step forward. In other words, instead of thinking I'm going to instantly become better at what I do, I start to understand that it's going to get better by me being more present when the mistakes happen, being aware that they're happening, and then slowly trying to adjust my behavior so that after a while, instead of me always reacting, I can actually start living a life where I can choose to act. And once I learn to be able to choose to act, then I have the eighth and the ninth step, so that if I make a mistake, I can make my amends to the person. But it's difficult to start making amends to people if I don't amend my behavior first in the sixth and the seventh steps. Now I'm going to stop you right there because we're coming up on a hard break, and this is okay. fascinating, and I'm loving the way you're summarizing this for folks. So listeners, we will be back with Don Opperson talking about what the 12 steps really are in about 
I'm not. Two minutes. We'll be right back. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Happy Oregon Homeownership is the result of a good working relationship between the home buyer and their realtor. Make buying your Oregon home a fun and rewarding experience. Get our free guide to Happy Oregon Homeownership. Act now. Limited availability. Free at realoregonhomes.com. That's realoregonhomes.com. Hi, this is Steve Ronaldo, host of the Classic Car Show on America's Web Radio. Uh, just talking to you about antique car insurance. I think that uh, if you're looking for the best coverage for your classic car, consider J.C. Taylor Insurance. They've been our my insurer for years in this hobby and have the top rating of every, all of the insurance companies in the hobby. When you get ready for insurance, call J.C. Taylor or visit jctaylor.com on the Internet. This is Daryl Pullis inviting you to listen to America's Homegrown Veggie Show right here every Saturday morning at 10 Eastern Time. Great guests, great tips, and valuable information about growing your own vegetables, fruits, and herbs. Your auto love and investment demands the best, and for 45 years, Passport Transport has been meeting those demands. From manufacturers to the one-car collectors and all other facets of the auto industry and antique auto hobby. The first and the finest with unequaled service and peace of mind. Passport Transport, your auto transportation company. Contact PassportTransport.com with your need today. Passport Transport. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back, listeners, to Dr. Ann's Relationship Radio. We are with Don Apperson, who is giving us sort of a new take, from my humble perspective, on what the 12 steps really are. And we were on step 7 and 8. So, Don, could you pick up where you left off? Sure. I'm going to slow down a little bit. I get pretty excited about this stuff. <laughs> Good. So, once I'm able to start seeing where my behavior or my actions are hurting me, and I'm able to start challenging myself to change them, I'm now ready to go to the people and start to make amends for the behaviors that I had. I'm not going to go say I'm sorry. I'm, I'm going to say that in the future I will change the way I act and I will try to no longer do these actions. Now, this is a little controversial, but the 10-step to me means that you go back 
and do the fourth through the ninth step now in every situation of your day. That was my goal. So in any situation that happened, I would try to remember that my job was to take full responsibility for myself, to try to forgive, to give it to God, try to change my behavior from reacting to choosing to act, and if I make a mistake, I make an amends for it. The 11th step for me is, is big. You know, for the longest time, the words prayer and meditation, I just kind of ignored them. But about 12 years ago, I started really taking them seriously. I meditate quite a bit daily. Um, I pray a lot. I think um, it's not what I would have called prayer back then, of you know, getting on my knees and praying. But I, I think I'm, I'm present and with reality, and I'm always grateful. That's kind of what my prayer is, is staying in gratitude. Because everything I've gotten is a gift. I mean, my life was totally just destroyed. It was decimated. And um, this program has given me back my life. And then I think the most important step that I think we're having a lot of problem with these days is the 12th step, which is about helping somebody else. Um, I was seven years sober before I started helping other people. And... It seems to me that that's not something that is done throughout all of the program. Um, you know, people will give blood or volunteer or do things like that, and then they're just a little too busy to sponsor. But I believe that sponsorship is like going from a Model T to a conquered jet in spirituality. Because it goes from me being that selfish person to doing something I've never done before in my life. I started learning how to give unconditional love. It's been the greatest thing that's ever happened to me in my life, being able to help another human being. And, you know, when I got here, I had no clue that you get more by giving than by getting. But that seems to be my truth today. And it's not about giving material stuff. It's about giving of your heartfelt self. Yeah, and the most important thing we have, which is our time. Exactly. So thank you for, for going through those steps with us because, again, even if you didn't get all of what Mr. Everson was sharing with us, it's a path to help you change your life. And um, it is led by a sponsor who is a person who has sobriety and who has worked the steps. And I say to my folks who I treat, please get a sponsor with at least five years sobriety because they have a font of wisdom for you that you can access, and they'll share it. Anyway, that's my little thing. So I want to go back to this higher power thing because in my practice with my patients, I often hear people say, like you said, I don't like this most step program because I don't believe in a higher power, which I thought about this for years. And I thought, well, okay, now what do I say? So what I'm saying today, and I'm saying it right now, and I say it to my patients, is yes, you do. Alcohol or whatever drug that you were on was your higher power. And you turn to it happy, mad, sad, glad, and in recovery, you now have to find a different higher power and I'm wondering, Don, would you comment on what higher power means to 12-step members? Okay. I'll tell you what it means to me. 
Yeah, and I got sponsored seven years sober, and I told him I didn't believe in God. And he said, you don't have to believe in anything. He said, all you have to do is believe that I believe. And if you like what I do and how I live and you do what I do, you'll get what you need to get. So for me, um, it says we come to believe in a higher power. Of course I don't have a, a positive higher power. When I get sober, I'm a mess. As a result of working the steps, I will get a higher power. It's not, you know, the, the faith doesn't come, you know, the belief doesn't come first. I have to do the work. And that's why this is a spiritual path. If I work these spiritual principles, I will have a spiritual awakening. And through that, I will get the higher power. And like I said, I've just dumbed it down. I came in here full of fear, and now I'm full of love. And to me, that's going from what I what was my higher power to the higher power I have now, which I call love. That's great. The so point that could be anything. The, the point is, is that we can have thirty people in a room. We can all have a belief in a different higher power, but we all took the same vehicle to get to our higher power. Doesn't matter what you believe in. Or if you don't believe in the same thing I believe in, it doesn't matter. If it's working for you and you're helping other people, then that's good enough. And I think that's the gift, is that God is everywhere. And, you know, when we get here, it's all about judgment. Well, well, who's your God? Who's your God? And I think now it's, like it's not really that important. What's important is that I work the spiritual path and understand that, the kind of power is a gift. It's not something I can earn. It's not something I can intellectually learn. It's something that is given to me. It's a state of grace given to me by working these spiritual principles. Yes, I think that's really well said. I want to know from you, over your years in 12-step programs, what have you observed to be the top reason many people give up drinking or drugs and change their life? I think they either hit a bottom or they find out that there's a trap door to their last bottom. Uh, I, I think it's fear, and I think it's a moment of clarity. It's a moment of grace. I don't think anybody... I know I, when I was in the state that I was in, could not have come up with the idea of getting sober. I, it, I don't know. It's just something that we are... We're blessed with that moment of clarity, and what we do with that moment of clarity determines whether or not we get sober. You know, a lot of people come to the program, but not many stay because they don't understand that it's a process that has to be worked. It's not something that's just bestowed upon you. I don't know if that answers your question or not. It does, and, and um, gosh, time is flying. Um, how do you resist relapsing? And just a short answer because we have other things that I want to ask. Sure, sure. Um, recovery is my life. It's the most important thing in my life. Helping others is the most important thing in my life. Um, I live my life with habits that best serve me not to relapse. And, again, short answer 
how, how has being in recovery helped your interpersonal relationships? Because, you know, this is a relationship program, so I have to ask that question. Well, a lot, since I didn't really have any of them when I got here. I think the best one is that in the last three years I've gotten into a relationship with a woman um, that's really healthy. We've really never had any arguments, and that came from doing a lot of work in the program. And getting out of your own ego, right? That's a daily challenge. Yeah, I know. For many of us, and what would be your best suggestion for listeners who are on the fence about giving up drinking or other substances of abuse? Only you can make the decision that you're that you're an alcoholic or drug addict, and that's a tough one. That's a tough one because of the denial factor. I knew it's tough. Um, go to go to six meetings. Go to thirty meetings in thirty days because you can always go back to drink and give yourself an opportunity to, to uh, live a happy life. Yeah. So, Mr. Appleson, it has been such an honor to have you on Dr. Ann's Relationship Radio, and I want to give you a heartfelt thank you because so many of us out there or any around us are on the fence about what to do, and they're often scared to go to 12-step meetings. And what I say to them is, go sit in the back row, pretend your wallpaper, but go. And listeners... If you're struggling with addiction, no matter what it is, there's help for you out there. It's free. It's free help provided by people who have been where you are right now. And personally, I've watched 12-step programs help people turn their lives around. And if Don Apperson and millions of other folks out there can turn their lives around, so can you. Recovery will change your life for the better. Put your faith in something that is unknown that will help you. Give it a try. What you have to do, what do you have to lose if you do that? And I guess that's what David Moxley asked himself when he invited me to host this program. Until next week, this is Dr. Ann Schubert reminding you that only you can make your life the way you want it to be. Until next week. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.